There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a now twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise on what's happening around the globe. Today, for the first of the new Monday episodes, I'm really delighted to be joined by Parag Khanna. Parag is the founder and managing partner of FutureMap, a strategic advisory firm. He is also the author of six very well-regarded books and has just published a new one called Move on the migration forces that Parag argues are going to shape the 21st century, and that's out around the world now already to buy. Parag, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, such a pleasure to be with you again, Jeremy. And you're coming to us from Singapore. What's the situation there? I see the, the, the COVID pandemic is on the rise again where you are. It is. It's been fluctuating. But and perhaps the irony of what I'm about to say is that this being one of the smallest and most dense countries in the world, you still have quite a segmentation among you know, the locations of the cases and, if you will, the intensity of the cases and normal life, as it were, for the vast majority of the population. So whether the cases are going up or down any given day, you can be forgiven for not necessarily noticing and for life kind of being business as usual. So that's in accordance with the government's plan to treat this as an endemic situation and more or less let people carry on as, as normal. Absolutely. Well, let, let's come to the substance of your book, which I think is particularly relevant, given that we are putting this podcast out at the start of the COP26 summit. And that is that the 21st century will be defined by migration and that we are in fact going to see much more of it and not much less of it. And I think that thesis will come as a surprise to many listeners. You know, if you look around the world today, you've got many countries seemingly pulling up the drawbridge here in Europe. There's this fortress Europe mentality. Joe Biden doesn't seem to be loosening restrictions on the US southern border. A lot of Afghans who would like to flee their country are stranded there as we record this. So why is it that you're so confident that we're going to see more migration in the next decades and not less? Well, for one thing, migration is simply part of who we are. To move is human. Migration and mobility are part of the more than 100,000 year history of mankind's colonization of the continents. 
And if you fast forward all the way to the year 2019, on the eve of the pandemic, we had reached a record high in global mobility and migration. The number of individuals who crossed a border in 2019, as tourists, business travelers, students, you name it, had reached almost 1.5 billion people, an absolute all-time high, despite all movements to the contrary. Let's remember whether it is uh, you know, Trumpism, Brexitism, Orbanism, you name it, that still happened. And so clearly migration and mobility and the sort of connectivity and our utilization of that connectivity are a force greater than the forces of resistance. And the number of people classified as migrants in the year 2019 had reached another high, 275 million people. So again, very strong evidence that the slope is curving upwards and continues to. Quite frankly, if you look more broadly, as I do in the book, and you take the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, every single century, the decimal place moves to the right. We have moved from centuries where migration, total migration numbered in the millions to the tens of millions, to the hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And no doubt at all that in the 21st century, it will be a billion or more. So billions with a B is where we're headed. And that has to do with the fact that migration is not something that you get to switch on and off uh, simply as a result of one election. Again, it's a far deeper process, part and parcel of globalization. It's part of our species level adaptation. Uh, to climate change, to political unrest, to many other forces. Climate change alone accounts for a growing percentage of the total number of migrants, whether they're internally displaced refugees, whether they're people simply voluntarily or, or involuntarily seeking a preemptive way out of a country that's becoming increasingly unlivable, you name it. But you have to take all of these factors as a totality. Heretofore, economic migration has actually outnumbered all other drivers, and economic migration is still a huge, obviously, motivation today. But climate is becoming and will be number one. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing we can do about it. I'd like to come on to that um, immediately after this one question, which I wanted to follow up on, which was, you talk about the numbers on the eve of the pandemic, and there's, there, there have been a number of commentaries around the pandemic that have said this will put global travel and I think relatedly global migration back by a number of years. Travel is more difficult. There are more restrictions on moving from place to place. People are going to be less likely to want to move to another country if there's a risk that they will only sporadically be able to return to where they came from. Do you buy the argument that, that the pandemic has put the brakes on that sort of global movement? Well, again, the pandemic was most certainly a very artificial suspension of the trend that was underway. And in the post-pandemic world, there'll be new vectors and directions of migration as it gets started again. And it could be on the basis of the labor shortages that are emerging, or of course, the collapse of various economies that are pandemic-induced, or of course, again, climate change and climate refugee movements and so forth. So we'll always have dynamism. Now, what I do document is that in the past 30 years, we did settle into certain predictable rhythms of intra-regional migration within the former Soviet republics, Asians within Asia, Africans within Africa, Europeans within Europe, Latin Americans to North America. But again, when you take into account the labor shortages that afflict much of the OECD world and climate change, you probably will wind up with new patterns. So look, for example, at how Canada has really risen to become one of the largest destination countries. There's, there, there have been years where Canada takes in, as in the case of last year, at almost as many migrants as the entire United States, but with one-tenth the population, right? So Canada is on, on track to 400,000 new migrants every single year, every single one of them on a pathway to citizenship. In Germany, if you look at their ability to absorb 
the refugees and migrants that have come from all directions. It's really quite astounding. And Britain, it's actually easier, despite Brexit, to move to Britain today than it was before Brexit because of the recognition that Britain faces these skill shortages of nurses and, of course, truck drivers right now and so on. You mean, I take it, for the vast majority of people in the world who aren't EU citizens? Exactly. <laughs> right. So indeed, and you know, if you think about Asian students, right, a record number of foreign students were admitted to, to UK universities last year. So what happens is that, you know, countries learn this lesson either the hard way or the easy way. The easy way is to do it like Canada and to realize that you need that human fuel for your economic diversification plans and you will proactively engage in a war for especially young talent to execute on that plan. And that you will build a political consensus around that, such that Justin Trudeau got get you know just got reelected, and you don't find far right parties in Canada the way you do in European countries, and you don't have sort of Trumpism in Canada. Or you can learn the hard way, like the UK, where you have this quite frankly embarrassing degree of you know mismatch between your existing labor force and then the the kind of migrants that you need to fill certain gaps. And again, you are learning the hard way in Britain. There's no sugarcoating it. And then there's somewhere in between a country like Germany that was thrust into the situation, but has been making the most of it more successfully than others. I give the example of the German politician in the 90s who coined the phrase Kinderstadt Inde, right? You know, have children, don't import Indians. And if you told him in the year 1991, when he uttered that phrase, and if you said, you know, excuse me, minister, in 30 years time, your country is going to have five or six million Turks, a couple of million Arabs, several million people from the Balkan countries and the former Soviet republics, about three or 400,000 Chinese and one million Africans, he would have a heart attack on the spot. Welcome to Germany in 2021. And of course, I'm reminded of um, in the, the British far-right politician, Powell, who famously warned of rivers of blood, as he put it, when with mass migration to the UK. And the, the irony is that his speech was largely right about the proportions of migration. He predicted how much migration to the UK would rise over, over the subsequent decades. But he was completely wrong about the social uh, implications of it. It's been, with obviously complications, it's been, broadly speaking, a success. So that's a, an interesting example. I'm so glad you mentioned this, Jeremy, by the way, because when I speak about mass migration to the future, suddenly people suspend their knowledge of history if they ever had any, because they pretend like this is something new, and it's not. In fact, I would go so far as to say that as a civilization, we're quite bad at preserving the environment. We're quite bad at maintaining international peace and stability. Here's something we're really good at, mass migration and Western societies being mass migration societies, because the United States and Canada and other countries would not be what they are today if they didn't have a centuries-long legacy of successfully absorbing migrants. So let's be clear that there is almost nothing new about what I'm talking about other than the scale, the volume, and some of the drivers. But it has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen, and we are actually quite good at it if we think about the lessons that we've learned historically from absorbing migrations. Let's turn then to climate migration. Just sketch for us what you mean by the vast flows of people that you imagine that will, will be on the move over this century driven by climate change. Are we talking people fleeing overheated parts of the world to cooler ones predominantly, or is it a more complicated story? So thematically what's happening is that people need to fl flee from coastal areas towards inland areas, from low-lying uh, you know, areas to higher elevations, and these kinds of trends. And that, that varies depending on where in the world we're looking at. People have to flee drought. 
places where there have been zero day events, which is to say when the taps run dry and the water has run out. So all of those are phenomena that, that spur both domestic internal displacement and international migration. And it's very important to emphasize that if a person is internally displaced due to climate change, let's say within the country of Brazil or within Guatemala, that's not to say that they don't count as a climate refugee, right? They absolutely are. It's just that they're domestic rather than international. Both categories are growing at an alarming rate. If you look at the IPCC forecast, they're predicting that for every one degree Celsius temperature rise, one billion people are displaced from the so-called climate niche, right? The op optimal latitudes for human habitation that we've grown accustomed to over the last, say, 10,000 years. So again, that's science talking and telling us that whether or not there is an arbitrary border there, an artificial line that has been inherited politically from centuries past, that line is not really going to matter as much as the human survival sort of exigency. And that's where we're headed. And the patterns will vary in different parts of the world. Of course, some patterns will be quite uh, consistent. You will have more Latin Americans fleeing north into North America. They're obviously not going to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. Geography matters you know, profoundly in this regard. And unfortunately, this means that Africans and Latin Americans can be constrained by geography, despite the fact that they are ceasing to be climate propitious continents. Whereas for Eurasians, which is in any case, the majority of the human population lives on this contiguous mega continent of Eurasia, the question really becomes what will be the patterns of recirculation of climate migrants within Eurasia? So it could be obviously Arabs, for example, and, and, uh, and Iranians moving northward. I have a chapter in the book about Eastern Anatolia. And if you look at climate models, the vast Eastern flank of Anatolia is actually one of the climate oasis zones that I explore with. It's actually becoming more livable over time. And of course, these, this region contains the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which have given life or gave life to the cradle of civilization downstream in Mesopotamia, Iraq, modern day Iraq and uh, Iran. But as you very well know, if you look at climate forecasts, or actually, quite frankly, if you look at the weather report from right now, Iraq, Iraq and Iran are absolutely scorching. Some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded on Earth have been reported in those countries right now. And the, they border, of course, on eastern Anatolia, which is depopulating as Turks move westward. So imagine the irony, right? You have this vast, verdant, livable space with fresh water and abundant agricultural potential bordering upon a scorching region that spans Iraq, Iran, Syria, and not quite contiguously bordering Jordan, Lebanon, and so forth. Can you, Jeremy, tell me with a straight face that as climate change accelerates, that you will not have growing populations of Arabs and Persians in that Eastern Anatolian region? Because if you can tell me that, then you know you and I, that in 20, 30 years time, given where climate change is going, you and I may just may not be looking at the same map. Let me take you up on that and play devil's advocate, because as you'll know, at the moment, Erdogan's Turkey is building a, a wall on its or a fence on its eastern border. And I suppose the larger question here is, is what you're predicting migration per se or huge humanitarian crises at the border regions between the increasingly unlivable places and the, and the 
still livable or increasingly livable ones. I think that's a very important you know, nuance and it's hardly a subtle one given the different imagery that they would conjure up. And, and in the book, you know, I have four scenarios for the future. I am not a sanguine utopian optimist about a borderless world of peaceful resettlement of vulnerable populations, far from it. In fact, I'm warning three of the four scenarios in the book are quite negative and quite dire. You used the word fortress earlier, and one of the scenarios is indeed regional fortresses, where the habitable regions of the world focus on their own sustainability and adaptation, but do very little for the rest of the world while also warding off uh, those migrants. But there's also a scenario, which is the one you just described, where you really have an uncontrolled scramble. I call it the new Middle Ages or barbarians at the gate, where even if Erdogan is building a fence, it gets trampled. Turkey is, after all, home to the largest number of refugees right now of any country in the world, if I'm not mistaken. So fence or no fence, they have been coming and they'll continue to. And there's going to have to be obviously some accommodation, some adjustment. And of course, he's doing various things as a tool of, if you will, pressure and to extract certain concessions from Western uh, countries in his negotiations over what he would do on the Western uh, border uh, with Greece and so forth. So there's that going on. But ultimately, the world is being divided into livable zones. And we will have to give serious thought to which kind of vectors of humanitarian crisis come refugee, climate refugees we allow and where they get resettled. Because there's a big legal difference, which is not yet codified, but will need to be, between what happens with political refugees, such as the asylum seekers who've come from Syria to Germany in particular in 2015, 2016, who right now European countries like Sweden and others are trying to send back, right? As you, as I'm sure you're following every day, European governments are saying, Syria is stable-ish enough so we're going to put you on a plane and send you back. And the Syrians are saying, God forbid, no, don't send me back, right? Now, apply that logic to a climate refugee scenario. If a country is literally unlivable because there is no more water in that society, are you actually going to put them on a plane and send them back? And that's not a question that we have answered at a, at a large scale, right? And we're going to need to develop the legal protocols and the diplomatic mechanisms and the logistical kind of thinking and basically evolve in some cases. And I want to emphasize there is no global solution to this that will ever be brought about. Again, I'm not naive. The um, international sort of diplomacy is premised on sovereignty. And the one thing that sovereign governments will never agree to is some kind of a universal free mobility accord. Nothing of the sort, right? There will be specific pairs of countries that will evolve into certain build the plane as you're flying it kinds of relationships on issues like this. Nothing more than that. I, I, I have very little faith that the fourth scenario that I talk about, which is called Northern Lights, which is kind of premeditated, strategic, gradual, but sustainable resettlement of the world population peacefully into kind of stable habitats. I sketch out a roadmap for what that would look like and why that would be a good thing, but I don't actually think that's the most plausible scenario. Briefly, what would it take for that scenario to become reality? Again, you know, we live in a world of sovereign states and we always will, but it would require that in, in pairs or clusters of them, they think more about transnational stewardship of the commons and thinking about the ways in which having a larger population of foreigners could actually benefit them. And of course, this is actually a valid demographic and labor market fact, because again, the, the perverse irony in the world today is that the most livable countries of the future, ecologically, such as Northern Europe and, and Russia and Canada, 
are actually rapidly depopulating countries absent migration. Could we correct that in a way that's actually in everyone's interest? So a larger version of what Canada and Germany are already doing right now. And can we do so in a way, of course, that doesn't trample completely on cultural sensitivities, but instead you know, helps countries evolve their understanding of, of self. And in a way, that's part of what I know you're following as well in Germany, this discourse around die neuen Deutschen. But this conversation that Germany is having is not about saying, how will you become exactly like us the way we were in the 19th century, right? They're having a much more rich and sophisticated conversation about what is the identity of a good civic or member of German society in the year 2025, 2030, even if that person has no prior connection whatsoever to Europe in general or Germany in particular. And the fact that they are open to that conversation and having it and, and gathering inputs and views in an open-ended fashion is, I think, a really remarkable thing. And remember, we're talking about Germany. If Germany can do that, then obviously Britain can. Part of the current coalition talks about the new government involve policies that would make naturalization easier or to flatten the path to naturalization for new migrants. And, 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 you know, and that coexists with, with a migration consensus in Germany that, that also supports a sort of fortress Europe approach. So you get contradictions within these ways countries are negotiating these things. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system.
So we're talking at the, the start of the COP26 summit. And obviously, that's all about mitigating the climate crisis. Um, and you make this distinction in the book between mitigating and adapting. And I, I guess a, a big question is, how does one relate to the other? And what role should the discussion about adaptation play in summits like COP26? Because there'll be those who say, well, yes, we will have to adapt to um, climate change. But if we focus too much on that now, we risk sidelining the discussion about mitigation. It just becomes, it, it becomes a sort of an, an, seen as an inevitability. What's your response to that? I'm glad that you articulated this sort of caricature of the statement, we will have to adapt, because I've never heard a more complacent statement in my life, because we have to adapt yesterday. Because if you think about it, we have these COP26 summits and negotiators get together and there's a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of promises about how we will mitigate climate change or, or by, by way of reducing emissions, decarbonizing industries, greening supply chains and so forth to the year 2050. But climate adaptation, to be clear, is about right now. What do we do for the 8 billion human beings of the world today? And perhaps half of that number that are already in climate-stressed countries and suffering the negative effects of climate change every single day. What are we doing for them? So examples of climate adaptation would be infrastructural investments, for example, better heating, cooling, and insulation, for example. And of course, migration, right? So resettling populations. Think, for example, of New Zealand's offer of a climate visa to the people of oceanic states, saying, you know, whenever you're ready, whenever you feel you need to, just get a one-way ticket to New Zealand and you'll eventually become a citizen here. That's just the deal that they're offering. There's no question that more such deals are going to have to be struck. By the way, the United States, uh, for all of the reputation superficially to the contrary when it comes to issues of immigration, especially under the Trump administration, if you think about the, the never-ending cascade of natural disasters and hurricanes that have afflicted Caribbean islands and so forth, the U.S. actually takes in hundreds of thousands of people every single year that are never going back to those countries after they've been devastated by various, again, meteorological events. There, there are, again, those bilateral pairs of countries. So migration is going to be an essential component of adaptation in addition to the infrastructural investments that we can make and the technological investments that you can make adaptation also means things like you know genetically modified drought resistant seeds and uh, hydroponic and aquaponic and uh, agriculture and vert vertical farming so all of the things we do to try to maintain our survivability even you could say water desalination is an example of an adaptation technology but all of those things I just mentioned, Jeremy, receive about 5% of total investment in as it relates to climate change, right? The other 95% goes to mitigation. Now, I would spend a thousand percent more on mitigation also. We could not possibly be doing enough, but we also need to be deeply concerned every moment of every day with the here and now and adapting for people. So again, also, of course, uh, moving cities, coastal sea barriers, right? Moving the capital of Indonesia, right? Moving Jakarta, things like this, the, the seawalls in Venice and that Korea and the, 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 that the Netherlands are doing, all of that is adaptation measures. And that deserves equal attention and equal financing. Let's just have a, a quick final discussion about the politics of all this. You talk about the need for cultural sensitivities among the countries that are willing to look pragmatically on, on these coming movements of people and, and take more in where they're in a position to do so. But it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to, to, to see this being a huge boon for nationalists and populists. Large, uncontrolled movements of people, chaos at the borders where those remain shut, or influxes of 
you know, large numbers of people from different cultural backgrounds where they are allowed to remain open. How does the politics of all this look? And is there a, a, a positive path, however narrow, through it all for sort of liberal progressives? First of all, we cannot generalize about sort of Western civilization as having one common response to this phenomenon, because that is very often the case when we say we won't tolerate this. And again, look at Brexit and look at Viktor Orban and look at Trump as if they're representative of the West, as if Matteo Salvini of Italy is the, the future of global politics. And quite frankly, he's not. Yes, the West is significant. And Western societies are, are very major destinations for migrants. But that said, again, I've just cited for you Canada, Germany, the really the, the change of course in UK policy and a whole bunch of other examples. So we cannot hold all, we cannot generalize, and we can't even hold values and policies as equal and stable into the future. Because again, at some point, the realization kicks in that one needs migrants for one's own demographic uh, revitalization, given the really, truly existential nature of the fertility collapse and that, we've, that we are going through and the aging of our own society. So I do think our political psychology on this issue is also going to change. Furthermore, far-right, xenophobic, anti-immigrant parties have really had their chance. And if you look at the AFD, if you look at the five-star movement, they're hardly in power right now in Germany or Italy. And they've most certainly had enough uh, fodder and fuel for their movement. So at the end of the day, simply being anti-immigrant is insufficient to be considered valid or plausible or credible governor uh, or to be electable. So I, again, I think that it's hardly a hypothetical that you're holding out. We have case studies and they have failed. And in any case, no one really admires these countries, just to be absolutely clear, right? Do you want your country to be run like Italy? Do you want your country to be run like Hungary or Greece for that matter? And this is important because one of the things that I dwell upon in the book is this idea of you know nationalism and national identity identity as some kind of immutable force. And when we have these conversations about nationalism, we so often hold a strongman regime and his or people as synonymous. And one of the ironies in doing so is that, in fact, the number one source of emigration are precisely the same countries that we hold up as representative of the new nationalism, as if, again, a leader and, and the people can be reified into one kind of common ethos. And that's obviously not true. And what I use as a lens for this is conscription. I simply look at the countries that have conscription policies. And I say if nationalism is such a you know ardent, you know, held, widely held belief and phenomenon, then why is it that the rite of passage for every young Turkish or Russian uh, male is to escape their country as soon as possible to avoid conscription? How nationalist is this society really? And how serious is that proposition? And the answer is, quite frankly, it's a joke. And I want to be as absolutely blunt as possible because so much of our Western political discourse of the past nearly a decade has been premised on precisely this utter you know, fiction that we should be holding these societies as evidence of a revenge of nationalism and rise of civilizational states. It is nothing of the sort. Look at the behavior of people. Uh, that's ultimately your best litmus test for everything. And what I see is young people wanting to escape precisely those countries. So there is no meaningful new nationalism. The only thing that matters in the future is looking at how young people vote with their feet. And the winning societies of the 21st century will be those that welcome and absorb those young people. And the rest of the societies that do not, that fail to attract them or that scare them away, are literally going to die out. Do you, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about this, obviously, and you've got these four scenarios for how it could play out. On balance, did this process leave you more optimistic or more pessimistic about how the world can handle the, these, the challenge of this great migration? 
accidentally optimistic about our capacity to do so. The more I learned about what strides we're making in adaptive technologies and some of the case studies of countries that are actually welcoming in migrants so much more than we give credit or attention to. Even Japan, for example, I have a whole chapter on Japan. There have never been more than you know, 3 million foreigners living in Japan, but there are, even though it's a drop in the bucket. And I profile countries like Kazakhstan as well that are growing sort of migration magnets. Canada, as I mentioned earlier, I actually foresee changes gradually in immigration policy. And I report very clearly on the way, the difference between the way and the signals you hear out of the Kremlin on this, which is obviously outright, you know, racist, nationalist xenophobia versus what you see in the majority of Russia's territory from provincial leaders and governors and mayors who are saying, we really need more workers here because we're becoming a climate oasis. We are the world's largest wheat output. We're getting Chinese infrastructure investment. We want to revitalize our, our industrial base. We need construction crews. Who's going to do all of this? Russia is one of the most rapidly depopulating countries in the world. They don't have nearly enough people. So real Russians in real positions of authority are telling me we need more foreigners. And that means Muslims, it means East Asians, South Asians. And I've been encountering this kind of smattering of foreigners each time I travel in the Russian Far East. So there's potential in all of these places for identity or policy to shift on the basis of just pragmatic reality. But again, I'm only cautiously optimistic about the, technolog the technological potential I'm optimistic about, the political potential, not so much. But again, there isn't a global answer to that. And the thing about scenarios, Jeremy, is that actually all of them come true at the same time. If you look at North America right now, you have the Northern Lights scenario in Canada, but you also have the Barbarians at the Gate scenario at the US-Mexico border. And that is how you construct you know, plausible scenarios. They actually have a grounding and a basis in today's reality. So in the future, actually, all four of the scenarios are going to come true. They're already true today. The question is simply where and to what degree. Mm -hmm. So different tendencies within one, with one overall reality. Fascinating stuff. Parakana, thank you so much for joining us. Parag's book, Move the Forces Uprooting Us, is available wherever you get your books. Thank you very much for finding the time to join this first new World Review Monday episode, Parag. A great honor. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, that's all we have time for today. You can read all of our international teams reporting at newstatesman.com um, and join us every Thursday for a discussion within the international team about the most significant stories in global affairs. We've been touching in this conversation on COP26 and the New Statesman is covering it in great detail. We have staff at the summit itself and we'll be covering it from our bureaus around the world as, as well. Our environmental sustainability editor Philippa Nuttall is writing a daily newsletter on the summit called Green Times. You can sign up for that um, along with the World Review newsletter if you don't already subscribe at newstatesman.com slash all hyphen newsletters. So do sub subscribe to that to get all the latest from the summit and some analysis of what it all means. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance is completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.